Hi everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today we're starting a new series of episodes on the podcast. What I'd like to talk about very simply is what we believe. That'll be the title of this series. And at one level you think, well that's fairly straightforward. Isn't that going to be obvious to all of us? Well perhaps it will be. Uh, But I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do a number of things in the next few episodes which may be useful even for people you've been around at All Saints for a long time or you've done a lot of reading about the Christian faith. You may have a fairly detailed picture of Reformed and Evangelical theology. Well I'm hopeful that even for you this will be useful. Um, Just a couple of uh, things up front before we uh, pitch in uh, to any kind of detail. The first is I'm hopeful that this will be useful to you not just if you're a member at All Saints and have been here for some time but perhaps especially for those of you who are newer to All Saints. You've moved here from other churches and of course it's we're having this steady stream of new memberships, uh, new people joining at the start of our services for the last few months. It's wonderful and it looks like continuing. We've got a, uh, a backlog of people who are very patiently waiting in the wings to join us. We hope this will be useful for you guys as you're trying to put together a picture of uh, what it is that we believe and seek to live out here at All Saints. We're also conscious that there are people who are considering joining All Saints. Fort Worth is a fairly rapidly growing area. There are people who are kind of contemplating moving to the area all the time. And what we want to be as upfront as we can and as clear as we can to you as you're seeking the Lord's will about where you're going to make your church home. If this is the place for you, then it will be good for you to know what it is you're going to be hearing here. So um, without further ado, let's just pitch straight in. And the first thing I want to do is to highlight that really what we believe is nothing very remarkable at all. Uh, we subscribe to the Catholic creeds, that is the universal creeds of the church. Um, if you look at our doctrinal standards, they're just mainstream reformed evangelical doctrinal standards, Westminster uh, standards and a few others. Um, I was looking at um, a shorter uh, evangelical statement of faith produced by the Nat- National Association of Evangelicals. Um, and you can find it on their website. I was just looking at it earlier today. And I was struck by the fact that, well, we certainly subscribe to all of this. It's quite a thin, um, somewhat minimalist statement of faith, but it serves to highlight uh, that really where we stand as a church is on the same ground as evangelical and reformed Christians across the world and indeed a lot of Christians who are evangelical but wouldn't think of themselves as reformed and any of the differences between us and our other brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be understood in that context really where we stand is in common with uh, evangelical churches across the world and down through history so um, for example I want to read through this statement of faith briefly and you'll see what I mean we believe the bible to be the inspired the authoritative oh sorry the inspired the only authoritative authoritative word Let me try that again. (laughs) We believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative word of God. Well, we certainly believe that. We believe that there is one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his vicarious and atoning death through his shed blood, his bodily resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and in his personal return in power and glory. We believe... That for the salvation of lost and sinful people, regeneration by the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. We believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit by whose indwelling the Christian is enabled to live a godly life. We believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, that they are saved unto the resurrection of life. Sorry, they that are saved unto the resurrection of life and they that are lost unto the resurrection of damnation. 
And finally, we believe in the spiritual unity of believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all completely unremarkable, isn't it? In the sense that, well, it's gloriously true. And we affirm that joyfully along with uh, evangelicals across the world and Bible-believing Christians down through history. And I want to just get that out in the open first up, because uh, although some of the things that we want to articulate as a church uh, stand as, uh, cause us to stand apart slightly from, for example, our Baptist Bible-believing Christian friends. We, we don't want to give the impression that uh, these essentials which we hold in common with them are any less significant. So that's the first thing to bear in mind. That said, I do think it is helpful to go a little bit deeper, and it's helpful to take a particular stance as we do so. What I have in mind is I want to share with you for the next uh, few minutes of this podcast a way of holding together the teaching of Scripture as a whole which not only allows us to see with a little bit more clarity and detail the, so to speak, uh, nuts and bolts of our faith as it's presented in the scriptures, but also it will provide uh, a way of opening up a whole range of other topics for discussion, which are significant aspects of how we feel the scriptures speak to us and to all Christians, how we're trying to live out our faith as believers here in Fort Worth at All Saints. So what I'm going to do is simply try and dash through the whole of the Bible, sounds somewhat ambitious, um, and show you in outline how the scriptures as a whole, so to speak, present the faith which we're called upon to affirm and live out. And that will then mean that we can start to plot a course for future episodes in this series. And all of those episodes will then allow us to dig a little bit deeper into a whole bunch of other issues. So let's just turn to your Bibles. If you've got your Bibles with you, that'd be handy. If you're cruising along in the car somewhere listening to this on the podcast, please don't try. But uh, you'll know where we're going to start because we're going to start at Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the world in Genesis chapter 1. And at the climax of the creation narrative, we have the creation of Adam and Eve. It's worth reading just verses 26 to 28. I'm going to read that and then make a couple of comments on it then god said this is on day six of creation after he's made the living creatures and so on let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and god blessed them And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we see here is a number of very significant things which shape the whole of the way in which we should read scripture going forward from this point. We see first that man and woman are created in the image of God, that is to say, as God's representatives, given the privilege of ruling creation for him uh, in keeping with his word, in his presence, on his behalf. That's highlighted immediately after um, the phrase, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, verse 26. Similar uh, ideas are found in verse um, 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, we're created with a vocation, God has created us for this glorious task of filling the earth with people who know and love the living God and working in the world. And the filling the earth thing will obviously involve raising families 
who share our faith and our commitment to this task and our commitment to the project that God has given us and our commitment to the living God himself. See, that all just leaps out at us right from the uh, first time that man and woman are mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Notice also the priority on relationship. Um, the idea of God, um, of humans being the image of God, suggests very strongly that there's a kind of affinity between men and women on the one hand and God on the other, which will make possible a kind of relationship between us and God that other creatures won't enjoy. And clearly that's significant in the pages that follow. It's possible to analyse this relationship a little bit further by distinguishing different aspects of the task. Some theologians have discerned, even here in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, prophetic priestly and kingly elements of Adam and Eve's vocation. Uh, kingly, obviously, and let them rule and have dominion and so on. Um, priestly, or some have seen that, and I think there is some uh, wisdom in this, in the uh, description of what God gives man to do in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Well, the word translated keep there is the same as the word translated um, or it's the same as the word found in Numbers chapter 3 and elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the, the Levites and the priests' task of serving in the sanctuary. And so that highlights another angle on what God has uh, given to man and woman to do and to be. We are uh, in God's presence, in the holy place, at least they were in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the garden, placed there to relate to God, to commune with him. And that priestly task entails that. After the fall, it will entail something else as well, clearly. Uh, but it entails at least this at this point. And then kingly, priestly, a prophetic vocation. Um, it's possible that um, something of the prophetic ministry of men and women is found in uh, Adam's uh, privilege in chapter 2 of naming all the creatures that the Lord God makes. Remember when uh, a helper isn't found that's suitable for him, and so God parades all the creatures before Adam, and Adam gives names to them. And in some fundamental sense, what's going on there is Adam is using his words to give shape and definition and form to the things around him. And in the broadest and most general abstract sense, that's what prophets do. Prophets use their voices, their words, to speak into the world, to reshape it, to take what is good and make it better, or later in the Bible, to take what is bad and try and correct it. So, in God's image, with this task that God has given them, priests, kings and prophets, uh, to uh, work in the ground, to relate to God, to love him, to serve him, to bring to birth families of people who all love God in the same way and to spread across the world and fill the world. That's the project that God initiates creation with. And one of the really striking things, and this is important to bear in mind when we're trying to understand the shape of history as a whole, which we'll get to in a future episode, one of the really important things to recognise is that that task is not abandoned after the fall. Obviously the fall throws this massive wrench in the works and um, in one sense everything comes flying off the rails and particularly in respect to those uh, distinctive vocations that God gives to men and women. Women who previously had the task of um, giving birth to the next generation of people who love God still have that task but it's occasioned with pain 
Genesis um, 2.16. Men who have the task of working the ground, as God instructed Adam, still have that task, but it's um, occasioned with pain and frustration. And all of them have been driven out of the garden. Adam and Eve are driven out from the garden and this cherubim is placed there, well, cherubim plural, these cherubim are placed there to guard the way to the tree of life. And the the term there, guard, is the job that Adam Adam had in chapter 2. So in some sense, the angels, or the cherubim, from chapter 3 onwards, at least for a time, have the privilege of doing what previously Adam alone, Adam and Eve, had the privilege of doing. They previously got to guard or keep the guard, and now the cherubim do it, and they're guarding it so that Adam has to stay outside. So from this point on, the question is, well, how are they going to get back into the garden to re-establish that fellowship with the living God? How is that relationship going to be restored, their vocation going to be uh, reinvigorated so they can do what God had called them to do initially? And God never loses sight of that project. For all the ups and downs in the whole of the rest of the scriptures, the whole of human history as it's narrated in the Bible, God never loses sight of that project. It's not abandoned or replaced with some other project. Additional projects are added to it. Now we've got to conquer the devil. Now we've got to atone for sin as well. But this task of coming to maturity as human beings, of ruling the world as God intended, is still the project that God is engaged in. Well, that takes us past creation fall, Genesis 3. And what's intriguing, um, the first time uh, the uh, themes that you uh, find there in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 uh, reappear is in Genesis 9. And you remember the, the uh, what happens, you've got... Um, uh, not one actually, but three great sins in Genesis 3, the fall of man, Genesis 4, uh, Cain's murder of his brother, Genesis 6, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And after that third cataclysmic sin, the Lord determines to put an end to all humanity through a flood, but preserves eight people, Noah and his household. Uh, and really the, the flood and the emergence of the world from under the waters is depicted as a new creation. The waters recede, dry land appears, and so on and so forth. And it's depicted as a new creation specifically specifically in chapter 9 when God speaks to Noah and establishes a covenant with him. This is the first time the term covenant appears in the Bible. And you notice echoes in it of what God said in Genesis 1. Now, before I read a couple of uh, extracts from that, just worth highlighting what a covenant is. A covenant really is simply a relationship but a well-defined one, a relationship with boundaries and uh, well-defined expectations, a relationship with sanctions in place if those expectations are breached. In the case of God's covenants with humanity, their covenants, the terms of which are established by God and not by us, they're they're one-sided in the respect that we don't get to pick and choose how we relate to God. God determines the terms of our relationship with him. That is to say, he stipulates the terms of the covenant and he tells us what we ought to do and then promises us certain blessings and privileges if we will fulfill the terms of that relationship. Now, um, the fact that, as we will see, um, this looks a lot like what God said in Genesis 1 makes you think that probably the Genesis 1 relationship ought also to be understood in covenantal terms. And I think that's very likely. Some scholars quibble at that point and say, well, it's not called a covenant. Well, it looks like a covenant because it looks like this. And if it looks like a duck and smells like a duck and cracks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Um, so here goes. This is how God reinitiates the relationship after the cataclysm of the flood. 
and um, Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 God blessed Noah and his sons now hear the echoes of Genesis 1 and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth can you see the echoes um, there of Genesis 1 the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they're delivered every moving thing that lives shall be food for you as I gave you the green plants I now give you everything but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, just pause there a second. This highlights another important principle in the way that Scripture unfolds and tells the story, or gives the history, rather, of our developing relationship with the living God. The point is, it's a developing relationship. There are echoes here of the relationship between Adam and Eve and God in Genesis 1, but it's not identical. Notice, be, fruit of, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that looks pretty similar to Genesis 1. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Well, that's new. That's different. That suggests that um, the created uh, world will exhibit a kind of subservience, a new kind of respect, fear of Noah that it didn't do before. Perhaps that Noah's uh, project to subdue the earth will be more successful or maybe it will be occasioned by greater or more explicit challenges who knows but there's development you see there's development in the the way in which God's plan is moving forward so what you've got is the beginnings of um, explicit eschatology that is to say an explicit movement forwards in history to something new that lies in the future and that's what that's why you see this progressive development between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Notice another point, end of chapter 9, verse 3. As previously I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. More blessings, more things to eat. Um, and you see, again, that's another example of how with the unfolding relationship between uh, humanity on the one hand and God on the other, God increases the number of different ways in which he pours out his blessing upon his people. And we'll see that particularly as we move on through scripture and see this covenantal relationship unfolding. Um, the covenant with Noah uh, also entails a sign. It's intriguing. Um, uh, chapter 9, verse 12. Uh, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when i bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds i will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh i'll just pause and think about that for a second god has placed a sign in creation which is there to remind him of his covenant commitment to his people the rainbow in genesis chapter 9 and we'll see this again later, especially in uh, Exodus chapter 2. Forgive me if I forget to mention it when we get to that, but I hope I will. Um, when it says God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God remembering his commitment to his people is a significant part of how the story advances. Uh, and the covenant sign has great significance. It's not just like a little reminder for us or just an aid memoir or just a vis uh, visual aid it's very significant at least in this much that it reminds god of his commitment to his promises and so causes him to act upon them now this relationship continues to unfold and we need to speed up a little bit after 18 minutes and um nine chapters of the bible that's not a great uh, one chapter every two minutes we'll be here for some time getting to the end we will speed up um, looking at uh, chapter 12 the famous um call of abraham what you see is the next step in god's uh, plan to uh, bring his 
created people to the fulfillment of the purposes he's got for them. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and in and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, what's going on here? Well, you've got a number of uh, themes which seem like at least tentative echoes of what's gone before. God's giving a land. God's giving uh, many people. God is blessing Abraham or promising to bless him just as he promised to Noah, just as he promised to Adam. Echoes of the um, uh, covenants that went previously. But notice again that this goes further. I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And in you all the families of the earth will find blessing. So here what you find is this... Um, remarkable and somewhat paradoxical theme in the way that God seeks to bring uh, humanity back into relationship with him. It is by beginning with this small, well-defined family or family community and making them special, singling them out, Abraham and his offspring. It is by doing that that God seeks to win the whole world, seeks to reach the whole world. And the way that you get to join in with that project is by coming to that family, blessing Abraham. If you do that, you'll be blessed by God. In uh, chapter 14, um, the, um, uh, the king priest Melchizedek in Jerusalem is the first person in the Bible to say, blessed be Abraham by God most high. Um, and Abraham gives him a tenth of what he's, of his plunder. He's blessed by Abraham, and actually he's a priest king, a little bit like Christ, and so he blesses Abraham in turn. Um, but he does the thing you're supposed to do um, to Abraham and his offspring. Now, um, just flick forward a few more pages. Uh, the relationship between God and Abraham is uh, a complex and developing one over the next few chapters. By the time you get to chapter 17... Another element becomes explicit in this relationship um, when God um, makes uh, another promise to him connected with the sign, the covenant sign of circumcision. Let me just um, uh, read verses 7 and 8 of chapter 17. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Now this is very significant. Remember uh, right at the beginning, um, Adam and Eve were given the charge to fill the earth and subdue it. Well, you can't fill the earth on your own. What fill the earth means is have lots of children and have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and between you, you'll fill the earth. Now here, what God makes explicit is that even following the fall, the cataclysm and ruin of humanity, God remains committed to his people's offspring. And indeed, verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And whose God will he be? I will be their God. I've remarked before in other contexts that it's almost as if Abraham disappears from view by the end of verse 8. God is so concerned for the offspring, the children that Abraham and uh, uh, his descendants will bear, um, that Abraham, yeah, Abraham's important, but the thousand generations that come after him uh, come to center stage. Once again, this is associated with a covenant sign, although here another element is added to it. Um, the sign of circumcision towards uh, the middle of chapter 17 is a sign which must be performed by people. And it's very important. It's not just dispensable. Uh, every male uh, born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who's not of your offspring, he shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from my covenant. The sign comes to embody 
the relationship itself. It's that significant. Now, as the successive ages pass, it's possible to uh, analyze future eras uh, into uh, successive covenantal ages and if you've ever read any uh, what's called covenant theology that is to say um, seeking to understand the unfolding uh, covenants or relationships between God and and his people throughout the Bible you'll be familiar with these names so what began with Adam Noah Abraham uh, reaches its next chapter with Moses and then David and then uh, possibly a sort of sub-chapter with the return from exile, and then, of course, the new covenant in Christ. And so just briefly, in the last few minutes that we've got, uh, let me just point to an, a couple of ways in which we see this relationship developing uh, during those successive ages. Uh, the covenant in the days of Moses is particularly worth spending a bit of time thinking about, not least because it's so much more detailed and complex with all the uh, laws and the temple structures and worship and so on and the festivals. Just notice how it begins. You get to the end of the book of um, Genesis and what's happened is that the people of the descendants of Jacob, who become the people of Israel, are in Egypt and they need to be liberated in keeping with God's promise to Abraham. God has promised that they live in their own hand and be blessed by him. In fact, they're living in somebody else's land and they seem to be worshipping idols as far as we can make out from later biblical texts. So what's going on? Well, um, God isn't going to let that state of affairs persist forever. At the end of chapter 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered Notice what it says. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's a very significant text. Not only because of the remembering point from back in Genesis 9, um, when I see the sign of the covenant, I'll remember. Um, God remembering is him initiating his action to save his people. But notice what he remembers. He remembers his commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he determines to work it out in this ne next phase of Israel's history by liberating his people from slavery, by giving them their own land, by speaking to them his law, by giving them a temple in which to worship him. Now, we could spend a lot of time thinking about all those things, and we will do at some point. I don't know whether we'll do it in this series, but let me just point to a couple of um, significant features of that. Um, first, notice that God gives to his people... Um, during this um, exodus phase of his relationship, the, the Moses, the Mosaic Covenant era, God gives to them a far more extensive series of laws, regulations, precepts and so on for them to follow. And you see this especially from Exodus 19 and 20 onwards all the way through Leviticus and, and then you got it again in Deuteronomy. It's important to understand what this is. This is God blessing his people by drawing near to them by speaking his word to them. Uh, a word is a person speaking. And so by God, by speaking his word, is he's not giving them the rules they've got to follow in order to be saved and to become his people. Quite the contrary. By the time they receive the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, they've already been liberated from slavery. Grace, liberation, precedes God's giving of his law. So the law in that context is, well, this is how you are to live as my redeemed people. The relationship between law in, in the abstract, in the sense of rules or uh, instruction, and grace is exactly the same in the covenant with Moses and in the new covenant. 
God graciously redeems us. A wholly undeserved act of pure mercy on his part. And then as a further act of grace and kindness, he shows us how to live. We must never conceive of um, God's law, quote unquote, whether we mean the law of Moses or laws in general, as some kind of ladder up which we must climb and obtain a certain performance level in order to stay in God's good books and earn his salvation. That's just not how it works ever in any era of history. And so that's how the law functions. And of course, the law and law itself is not the best word for it. Teaching Torah is a better word for it. Again, more on that another day. Um, embodies a whole bunch of other blessings. It's the Torah, the law, that shows Israel how to construct the tabernacle and later the temple so that God can uh, move in, so to speak, to be with his people. And it's a great day of celebration when God does that at the end of the book of Exodus or in the temple when, uh, in the days of Solomon when it, the, the temple is finally built. Uh, that's a day of celebration. It's the law that led you to that point where God would dwell among you in that kind of architectural uh, uh, sanctuary, the tabernacle or the temple. And so again, what you've seen is a, a development of God's promises. And of course, the final point to make, just by uh, briefly in passing, by this point, you no longer got two people like in the garden or eight people like in the days of Noah or Abraham and his 318 people. You've got hundreds of thousands of people. And included in these hundreds of thousands are many, many, many people who are not pure blood Abrahamites. There's the mixed multitude that came out from Egypt during the Exodus. So the plan that God had in uh, Genesis 12 to bless many nations even now is starting to become felt even if it's only an undercurrent in biblical teaching. Now the uh, the relationship between God and his people uh, continues to develop in the days of King David. Um, very brief look at 2 Samuel 7 um, where you notice again more of these uh, themes um, that you've found uh, in previous covenants um, just one example, chapter Second uh, Samuel um, 7, verse 9. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Well, isn't that exactly what God said to Abraham? You see again that um, what God's doing in and through David and the, the monarchy that comes after him is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. All these relationships, it's not like you're, one stops and then you move on to the next, as though they're kind of sequestered eras that don't have any relationship to each other. Quite the contrary. What, what's actually happening is that you've got the development of a single uh, trajectory of developing ongoing relationship with, to which God adds new blessings all the time. And by the time you get to David, um, the king is another blessing from God, one who is given the law, has to write out his own copy of it, and then has to lead the people in keeping it. And there's a lot more to be said then that we won't talk about now. Finally, let me say a word briefly about how Christ fulfills all these. Simply to say, Christ fulfills all these. Um, we shouldn't think of Christ's ministry um, simply as uh, picking up one or two uh, prophecy texts from the Old Testament or um, just fulfilling the law in some uh, narrow sense. Rather, we should recognize that in Christ, what happens is that all of the things that were promised in or latent within these previous eras in uh, the history of God's dealings with his people come to fruition and fullness. So think of all the blessings of any aspect of uh, that the people of God could have enjoyed at any moment of their history. In Christ, you find all of these. 
you had the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. Well, Christ is God tabernacling among us. You had the law spoken to the people of God uh, by, on, a, on a mountain to inform and teach and guide his people. And Jesus goes up on a mountain and sits down and begins to teach his people in Matthew 5. Uh, you have the whole system of worship and sacrifices and priesthood. Christ is the sacrifice. Christ is, is the priest. He is the cornerstone of the new temple which is being built out of spirit-filled human bodies who are united with him in these and many 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 other ways christ fills full all the promises and expectations of those former eras what that means is we can now go back and look at what scripture says throughout the whole of uh, its uh, scope from beginning to end and see the significance of details of previous covenantal eras for our lives now as Christians. It's not just the case um, that, oh, you look back at Moses and that's how they did things then, or you look back at Abraham and you think, oh, that's how things operated then. Rather, uh, because what we have in Christ is the uh, culmination of all those previous blessings that God has showered upon his people, our lives now and what we believe now is informed by, even though it's not identical with, what the people of God did back then and how they lived back then. And so what we'll be able to do next is to start looking at all these different aspects of our lives, uh, our families, our vocations and so on and so forth, and try and uh, see how uh, a right understanding of those previous uh, eras of God's dealings with his people uh, will inform our understanding of uh, how we ought to live and what we ought to believe about those things today. But I think that'll uh, be a topic for another time. For now, uh, the Lord bless you. Uh, take care and bye for now. <laughs>